Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and this is the next in our Advances in Simulation collaborative episode. And the title of it is Walking in the Shoes of Our Patients. And I'll talk more about the paper in a minute. But uh, by way of background to this topic, we all know that simulation is one way that we can experience a parallel universe. And for many of us, that's to experience the opportunity to take care of patients in a simulated environment. But this can also include uh, the experience of ill health, diseases, conditions and treatments. And so hot off the press from advances in simulation, uh, we have Walking in the Shoes of Our Patients, which is a scoping review that sought to understand the ways that simulation can allow healthcare professionals or students to experience ill, ill health and to think about what impact that might have on their empathy. And so I'm joined today by two of the authors. The first of these, uh, Milda Carvalita, is a Bachelor of Science in Human Biology graduate from Queen's University, Belfast. And she's currently a first-year medical student at the University of Aberdeen. How are you, Milda? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me here. Well, it's a wonderful privilege. And of course, joined by Jerry Gormley, who is a longtime friend of Simulcast. Uh, as many of you would know, he's a practicing GP. He's a professor in simulation at Queen's University, Belfast. He describes himself as a sociocultural researcher and has an interest in broadening the reach of simulation across health and social care professions. And if you've ever looked at any of his publications, you will see the depth of that interest and uh, contribution. How are you, Jerry? I'm really good, uh, um, Victoria, and uh, again, many thanks to joining you again and discuss all things simulation. All right, well, let's start talking about empathy. And Jerry, I was keen to get your thoughts on this, because ultimately this was the outcome that you were looking for in the studies in this scoping review, that healthcare professionals would uh, have some enhanced empathy. Now, you say in the paper that empathy is a challenge for healthcare professionals. So can you tell me a little bit more about why this is hard and what actually influences our ability to experience and demonstrate empathy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, as ever, a great, great question, uh, Victoria. Big, big question, big topic. Uh, and I think it's probably worthwhile just stepping back for one moment and just considering about what is actually empathy. Um, uh, you know, we, we know what sympathy is. Sympathy is that, that acknowledgement that is somebody is suffering. I'm sorry, you're in pain. However, you know, empathy is that, that beyond that, uh, stepping beyond that and that ability to, sense uh, to detect others emotions tune into their life world and understanding how they're feeling for example i i can see that you're in so much pain i only can imagine how difficult that is for you that that's sort of beyond uh, a sympathetic response and of course such empathy then permits and allows us to be compassionate which is obviously very core and fundamental for us as healthcare practitioners i can see that you're in pain i'm here for you and i will do my best to help alleviate your suffering and of course, without compassion, I would argue, you can't have healthcare. Uh, it's just fundamental. Uh, and to provide compassionate care, we need to make sure that we're empathetic, to uh, really sense uh, what our patients are suffering, um, to understand where they're coming from, which will then enable us to permit uh, a compassionate uh, response, a compassionate care uh, for them. 
but we do this. We do this every day as practicing healthcare professionals. Uh, but I think it's fair to say there can be and are challenges. We are compassionate, but there are challenges. There are many. The high-pressure environments that we work in, uh, time poor, intense uh, workloads uh, sometimes can present barriers. The pandemic, you know, we're wearing PPE, all this cladding, you know, covering up our micro gestures or non-verbal cues that maybe can present barriers for empathetic care. As a GP, we're doing a lot more remote consulting. Uh, I'm listening but not able to see or give those non-verbal cue responses as well. Also, evidence would uh, suggest that uh, when, um, you know, for example, medical students, when they enter medical school, have that really high altruistic state. Uh, they want to be very compassionate. But when the realities of practice, the tensions, the complexity, uh, we know through evidence that compassion uh, and empathetic skills can can decline. Um, and others argue um, that uh, this notion of what we call the clinical gaze, uh, Victoria, you know, this idea that, you know, when we see and we react with patients, sometimes we might just see the, the biological disturbance. But of course, mm-hmm. our patients have, you know, the emotional, the sociological responses. So it's something that we really want to make sure we want to drive uh, and improve on in our empathetic care for patients. Mm. So this is quite interesting, isn't it? So you're saying that it's not that we lack empathy because we're not nice people. Most people are and they yeah, want yeah. to be empathic, but I think you're building the case here that there's a lot of barriers to doing that. So allowing healthcare uh, professionals to retain that and to hang on to that, uh, we've got to think about the things that are going to support it. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that you uh, mention and that you talk about in the paper is that uh, – personally experiencing ill health seems to be something that does afford an increased ability to demonstrate um, and experience empathy. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, um, when we, again, when we turn to the literature, um, we have signals that indicate that uh, when healthcare practitioners themselves experience illness through disease, conditions, um, yeah, they touch the boundaries. They know what this feels like. They know that this condition, how it impacts on their day-to-day activity, their relationships, their ability to work, their ability to have a, a full, wholesome, wholesome life. It's, it's felt, you know, it's, it's not just an intellectual exercise. It's a, it's a, I'm feeling this and it reminded on a day-to-day basis. And, Again, the evidence would support that those individuals who have experienced ill health will generally demonstrate more empathetic care to the patients. They, they, they've been in the shoes of the patients. They know what it, they know what it's like. But of course, for us as healthcare educators, I mean, we would never wish <laughs> illness on our on our learners and our practitioners. Um, but I suppose, as you can see, as a uh, somebody interested in simulation, yeah, we we create realities. You know, is there potential to create the reality of what some illness experience may be like, um, and hence our interest in, in the research uh, that Milda that Milda led? Yes, all right. Well, this is a that sounds like an obvious journey for someone like yourself who is, as you say, interested in simulation, and uh, I can empathise with that myself. Uh, but uh, Milda, enter the well. At that point, you were. Not a med- even a medical student, but uh, into someone who's interested in doing some research. Tell us a little bit about uh, how you got interested in this and what some of your initial background reading made you think about the idea of simulation as a way of affording an opportunity to experience ill health. 
So I was in my last year of undergraduate degree of human biology, and this was an opportunity for me to conduct a research project. I was given a list of various different topics. However, I knew that I really want to study medicine after I graduate. I knew that once I started uh, my human biology degree, and there were very few topics that were looking into patients and how they're being affected. And that was always a, an interest for me because I'm a very empathetic person myself. I saw the abstract and uh, I read about it. I read, I did a bit of uh, background reading to understand more the topic of it, uh, itself, the illness experiences. And I was lucky enough to be chosen uh, to conduct this mm. research project. It was a lot of fun. Yes, and I think what you're referring to there, uh, for people who don't operate within Professor Gormley's very well-organized research uh, framework, uh, Jerry, you put projects, PhD projects, uh, student projects up on a website, and people who are interested in doing research with you can uh, put their hand up, have a look. Is that right? Yeah, um, uh, we, we, we have ideas um, and, and we love to invite others to uh, work with us and develop those ideas, but more importantly, develop individuals uh, for our community. And uh, yeah, it was it was fun. Yeah, yeah. Just pulling back the curtain on how uh, uh, experienced professional researchers operate there, Jerry. Um, all right, well, let's turn our attention now to what you actually did, uh, Milda. So here you did a scoping review. You used a very wide range of search terms. You went through a very rigorous sifting process, uh, which is, for people interested, beautifully described, of course, in the article. And you ended up with um, 77 articles that met your inclusion criteria. Before we get to what those articles told you, I'm just sort of interested for people who might not have done a scoping review, Milda, how did you find that process? Uh, were there any particular surprises, things that you found either easier or harder than you'd anticipated? So before starting the scoping review, I was also one of those people who never conducted one. And I discovered it to be very chaotic, but very interesting. It was constantly changing. Coming into the field and just... Uh, we, we, we were considering and deciding, okay, we were going to include this. We need to make some changes. It took us a while to configure the search engine because we wanted to include as much, we want to include everything that is out there. We wanted to see what is out there and to make sure that we find whatever has been published, uh, written, um, about this topic. And after that, it was quite a straightforward process. We, also discovered that there is not just maybe there may be illness experiences with some subsections. For example, you can also look into uh, simulations of social uh, uh, social conditions, which also are very important. However, there are so many of them that it's another I would say another paper that would need to be published. Just looking into all of that. Yes, and for people who are interested, the table one in the article um, shows these search terms and they're everything from different kinds of simulation uh, right through to the kind of perceived emotions as well as the conditions themselves that you searched for. And, uh, Jerry, for people who are kind of methods nerds, uh, a scoping review is a probably a good thing to do in this sort of topic, isn't it? Because as you say in the article, you're just trying to map what's out there. There's uh, it's, This isn't going to lend itself to something more systematic where you have to be much narrower because this is a little bit of everywhere am i on the right track here uh, absolutely right um 
so a scope and review, and we use the RSCUE uh, on a Mali uh, methodology, which is referenced in, in, in the paper. And you're right, whenever you're approaching a new sort of, you're trying to describe a new entity, a new phenomena, um, we're really just going to look out to the Evans space and just map what is out there. Um, and that's part of the challenge, but also I think Mill alluded to part of the, the, uh, the, the, the enjoyment is that we're doing something new. We're starting to sense make. There's no route map for this. Well, there is the methodology, but actually, you know, what's the search terms? How do we find those out? Um, and I have to say that's where you collaborate, bringing, you know, others in, bringing, a, very importantly, a, a subject-specific librarian. Uh, but most importantly, fresh eyes like somebody like Milda, you know, a student who really, I'm new to this topic and I'm going to ask you questions. And I think that's the really way that you can have a nice dynamic between your collaborators as particularly you embark onto this this mapping process. You, you're right, you know, um, uh, scoping reviews generally don't critique the papers, the quality of the papers. That's another study, uh, but this is really just to put sort of a sort of a, a, a parameter around this phenomena, and let's see what's out there. Uh, where's the gaps? What do we know? Does there ha- is there impact on on an empathy? Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. All right. Well, I I think everyone is really getting excited to know what you actually found, Milda. So uh, maybe let's talk first about the kind of simulations that people did in order to have um, healthcare professionals or students experience some kind of illness or condition or treatment. Um, Can you give us uh, some examples uh, or some trends that you saw in the papers that you studied and maybe give us a sense of any favourites or ones that really piqued your interest? Uh, there was a quite a vast majority of uh, different conditions that were looked into, uh, starting from simulations of old age, a lot of those. Uh, and they were using different simulation suits, such as old days, gerontological. Um, there were a lot of studies also looking into diabetes simulation, and they were using such methods as, for example, insulin injections, uh, which they used um, just saline, simple saline, to inject themselves, uh, the participants. And this was shown to have very high success rates uh, among participants to increase empathy and make them understand the struggle of patients actually experiencing, actually having to do every single day and a few times a day sometimes. There was also quite a huge interest in the field uh, of uh, auditory impairments and auditory hallucinations about also concerning mental health, such as schizophrenia. And uh, there was one of my favorites um, that was called the Altered stage of, uh, States of Consciousness. So it was a, an art exhibition in London, where, uh, which was guided by the voice recording. However, the participant met few actors before, which talked over the voice recording at the same time as the participant was going and observing the art. So it kind of gave an idea of what the person experiencing the auditory hallucinations every single day and just operating in the world will would feel or just have a, give, give a glimpse of what it might look like. Um, I really enjoyed that. Uh, also, there were a lot of uh, uh, simulations uh, looking into uh, visual impairment. They used welders, goggles, tinted glasses, um, ostomy care. It was also a very interesting study. Uh, different uh, bariatric suits were used for obesity simulation. It was also quite a 
uh, a very big change in understanding what person that is living with the obesity is experiencing every day uh, in everyday life their struggle to get around and just do simple tasks. I guess it's not surprising given the modalities we have, but it does seem as though many of these simulations focused on visual, auditory, tactile experiences and physical limitations. Um, Jerry, were there any other examples that particularly stuck out for you? Yeah, I mean, um, it just was fascinating once we looked into this sort of arena. Um, We all maybe have some ideas of, you know, uh, like aging suits and things like that. But once you start to see the breadth of what's out there, it really just was like, oh, that's really cool. You know, that's really interesting. Uh, And you're right, it's a lot of the techniques were... You know, we, they, they use technology, very simple, sometimes sophisticated. You know, as you say, Milda, just a very simple pair of glasses with, you know, they're, they're fuzzed out a little bit. So maybe by cataract or visual impairment to some really, uh, you know, advanced VR experiences. And, and, you know, sometimes just the simple things were the best. Um, and, uh, you know, about, you know, for, for example, the, the, the visual impairment. Yeah, you get to get a sense of what it's like without maybe having your full vision, but then going about your day-to-day activities. Oh, I can't do that. Um, For example, the aging suits, uh, where, yeah, you you know, you can imagine how learners put those on, get a sense of the difficulty in joint movement, um, uh, you know, and limited gait. But when you start to do a task, like undo your buttons, open your medicine bottle, all of a sudden, that life world starts to open up, albeit in a small way, but it opens up a new sort of horizon of learning. Um, sometimes the, also all the simple things, you know, for example, some I know there was a study where students adhere to a diabetic diet for a day. Really insightful. We tell our patients, you know, this is what you should be doing. What about you trying it for a day? Uh, I thought I thought was fascinating, and the one that really got my interest and, and probably reflects my sort of uh, kind of social justice background is that uh, you know uh, you know in poverty you know um, ca- can you you know can you survive in ten pounds for a week a week you know ten twenty dollars for a week uh, you start to see a different world uh, mm-hmm. so uh, hope hopefully it gives you a sense Victoria of the, the yes. really vast breadth. There is technology, but not all the time. Yeah, we're going to come back to that poverty one as well when we talk about maybe some unintended consequences. But before we do that, um, you know, the first part of this was looking at just what were people doing, but the second part was and what impact was that actually having on uh, empathy? And so I suppose, Milda, this then, uh, you had to have some way of mapping what sort of outcome measures, how were people measuring things like empathy? And it seems there were a variety of qualitative and quantitative things. There were some scales and some people were uh, having some sort of a valence of positive or negative on that um, that must have been quite hard to tease out as well the impact yes it was a bit of a challenge to uh, sometimes find out how the impact uh, could be measured how it was measured figure out uh, those details however uh, a lot of studies used uh, Jefferson scale of empathy um, a lot of qualitative quantitative different types of measures uh, briefing sessions um, blogs just reflective pieces and that was really helpful because that data was already summarized for us and given in papers. And they were saying that a lot of positive um, positive comments came back after the study or some negative comments were observed or no impact was detected. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, Jerry, coming back to your original conversation about empathy, you know, measuring it's not entirely simple, is it? Uh, we certainly know when it's not there, but um, it's also not on a scale of naught to 100 in a single spectrum, is it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's very multi dimensional um you know there's cognitive domains to it to uh, the emotional domains uh but i think that's a, that was a very uh, astute comment when it's not there you know it's not there uh and, that, and that's that's a key key experience also it's also how we how that individual perceives it and and uh, acknowledge it, it, it as well well joe i'm going to stick with this uh, you here because you mentioned your social justice uh, interest, and I know you're also a deep thinker about both the intended and unintended consequences of what we do in education, in healthcare, in simulation. Uh, but I, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole as I was doing some research for this and discovered that, in fact, some of the groups that we're trying to help by allowing medical students in many of these cases to become more empathic and experience ill health don't like the idea of tokenistically simulating their lived experience. Uh, speak to that for me, Jerry, because I can see where they're coming from. They don't like the idea that uh, a med student for a day wheels themselves around in a wheelchair and thinks they get it. Yeah, great point and actually really important point to, to surface. And I get that perspective that the perception of you know, as you said, sitting in a wheelchair or wearing a suit for, you know, an hour. How do, how can that even attempt to explore um, the the life world of someone who lives with that illness, lives maybe beyond that with that illness on a day to day basis? Um, and I totally I totally get that. Uh, but I think for us as a simulation community and educators, we know it's just not about the tech. Uh, it's about it's about the pedagogy, uh, but not forgetting that we work in a human discipline. We work with people, we work with colleagues, but we work with people who live with illness, uh, their carers, their family. And where we may have these technology enablers like the, you know, aging suits and various visual impairments, it's how we put the learning science into that, how we frame that with our learners. We're not we're not we're not saying that this is going to be totally like this, but it's going to move you forward in your thinking, hopefully, um, and how it can advance your understanding beyond that biological, beyond that just physical impairment, to actually how that affects you in your day-to-day -day activity, simply holding a knife to feed yourself. Uh, you know, that th those things that we want to open up more horizons uh, for our students. Also very passionate about person-centeredness and simulation. And, you know, you know, we, we are creating realities f that reflect the real world. Um, and, and I may be going to be a little bit provocative here, Victoria, but I think in healthcare there is challenges about the sort of retreat of patients and our experiences. We're more online learning. Our world is simulation. Um, challenges in clinical arenas now, getting our students placements because of the pandemic. So we never more has been their time. We really want to push that person-centeredness in, in our education. Uh, and I know there were some examples of uh, the point of view simulation uh, where they actually worked with individuals who live with that illness and they shared their stories, they shared their experiences and they were, you know, they were integrated, they were woven in uh, to the, the learning experience. So my reply really in summary, Victoria, is that, uh, yep, I get it. There is a risk of token, tokenism. However, 
as a field of, uh, of, of simulators, we know we have to have the pedagogy, but also we've got to have the patience at the centre of mm. what we're doing. Yeah, and I think that's a great argument for thinking about the place of simulation within an integrated approach to an appreciation and, and development of empathy. And as you say, actually um, interacting with uh, patients, people who have experiences of ill health, as well as maybe having a simulation experience, as well as uh, approaching the topic in a spiraled way throughout a curriculum. And I think that that was certainly my message is that yet again, simulation should be seen as part of a comprehensive program and pulled in where it's appropriate and not be thought to uh, tick the box for there we go now deaf empathy is done yes very interesting Um, but for people who are interested uh, you can benefit from my rabbit hole if you like and I'll put a couple of uh, references to to, you know that thoughtful idea about where do we strike this balance between those things all right well as we start to pull all this together I know Milda you might only think of yourself as a first year medical student but I think you've got some important advice where where do you think we should take this now Uh, what should educators do what should researchers do on the basis of um, your findings in this scope review I think that it's very important to now evaluate uh, and critically appraise the the data that we found what is out there because we know what is out there now but we need to know what's the quality of the material that we found um, also I think it would be a very good idea to look into more long-term uh, impact of this uh, of these simulations because it has not been explored yet and i think it would be very beneficial to know not just how the participants feel after uh, the simulation in one day or one week but in three months in six months in one year does it stay or does it need to be repeated does it need to be reminded mm. and also just i think it would benefit a lot uh, positively in developing the teaching uh, framework for future healthcare professionals and I think especially uh, in this global pandemic time where medical students and healthcare students in general they don't get that much exposure and they really I feel it from my own experience and from my friends experience who are just been uh, medical students for two three years now it's really hard to be more empathetic and more understanding whenever you're just studying everything through online material and you're not really talking to people and you're not getting that firsthand experiencing experience of what they're actually going through. I think also inherent in what you're saying is just the very fact that we make this the focus of a simulation sends a quite a strong message that we think this is important uh, and sometimes that can have an impact even on its own. Uh, yes, Jerry, same question. Anything you would add? What do you think are the implications for educators and or next steps in research in the area? Several things and uh, hopefully through Milda's work that we've really brought to the surface this this entity uh, and you know what as a healthcare practitioner educator community here's something else in our toolbox uh, that we can consider uh, as you say integrating into our curricula or programs of learning this is not meant to be a one-off tick box exercise but you know are there opportunities within uh, your programs that we can really raise that 
uh, awareness of our patients' experience. It's also now it's also a voice for our or those individuals who have illness to to really sort of say, look, we're here and this is what we could do, and it's an opportunities uh, to to welcome patients on board to help us and it maybe in a different way to help um, further advance the development of our young healthcare pr- professionals. Um, in terms of future research, as ever, you know, when you when you look into the evidence, uh, you come up with lots of questions. This could go off in different tangents. I, I think I think you're right. We need to look at critiquing the evidence. You know, we've mapped the contours of the evidence base, but now look, let's look at what actually what is the impact. Uh, and as ever, <laughs> as you know, what's the unintended consequences? Remember, for example, that you know you may give somebody lived experience. But that just might trigger, strike a chord with their past experience uh, and a case that, that happens in all simulation. So this idea of you have trauma-informed care, but let's have trauma-informed education. Because, you know, you could do that sim a hundred times, but there's one person where this really resonates and chimes with them uh, in, in maybe in a, in a, in a negative way. Um, and, of course, layering on an illness experience in someone has also potentially got risks. So I think we need to... Um, really critique the evidence now and say look you know we know what's out there but how does it work what's the consequences and unintended uh, uh, consequences mm, yes and i think that means that's also i think a very generic principle with simulation we know that the dose response curve is not a linear one so uh, yeah. i think definitely true here well simulcast listeners uh, we have been talking with milva Milda Carvalita and Jerry Gormley. And we've been talking about an article in Advances in Simulation, Walking in the Shoes of Our Patients, a scoping review of healthcare professionals learning from the simulation of patient illness experiences. And that is, as I said, hot off the press from the end of 2021. It's been a pleasure to talk to you both. And uh, we're looking forward to more. Good luck with your studies, Milda. And uh, Jerry, I think this won't be the last time we talk about this topic. And I'm sure Milda might be back with us too. So thank you both so much for your time today thank you indeed Uh, real pleasure victoria so another great episode in our advances in simulation collaboration we're very pleased to have that one of the things that jerry and i were just reflecting on after the episode is that uh, we really need to underline how good it is and advocate for researching with students as jerry told me it was uh, phenomenal energy that milda brought to this project quizzical minds and people who can bring fresh perspectives so for our simulcast listeners uh, if you are a student go looking for opportunities and if you have students think about how you might involve them in your research happy listening